You know, actually, there's a, a guy by the name of Herm, Herm Edwards. He played in the Super Bowl in 1980, a long time ago. And since then, uh, Herm has been uh, a football coach. He's been a, a TV commentator. Uh, currently, he's the coach for the Arizona State football team. But uh, about 15 years ago, he was the coach of the Kansas City Chiefs, the Kansas City Chiefs. And, and there was somebody who asked him, hey, what are your thoughts on teamwork? And since this is Super Bowl Sunday, I thought this is an appropriate thing for us to read. This is what, this is what Herm Edwards answered. He said, my players play for the name on the side of the helmet, not the name on the back of the jersey. I like that statement. I mean, when you think about the Super Bowl, like for a team to make it to the Super Bowl, like that's quite an accomplishment. That, that's a big feat. And here, here's the key with that. There's not one player that gets the team to the Super Bowl, right? It's not one player that leads the team and gets them to the Super Bowl. It takes an NFL team has 53 players. And every one of those players has to figure out how to work together to, to accomplish a common goal, to win a game, to lead their team to the Super Bowl. This is why the Super Bowl is so hard to get to. Because it is difficult for us as human beings who are typically self-centered to work towards a common goal. It's difficult to get human beings to not focus on the name on the back of the jersey, but to focus on something different and greater and better. And why is that? It's because of our human nature. Our human nature focuses on ourself as being number one. In fact, there's, there's a story from Greek mythology. In Greek mythology, there was a young man by the name of Narcissus, a young by the name of Narcissus. And this guy was very much like me. He was handsome. He was strapping. He was, what are you laughing at? Like, this is true. Well, Narcissus was a handsome young man, and he knew it. And one day, he's out walking in the woods. He's walking in the forest, and he comes along a stream. And he looks in the stream, and he sees a reflection of himself. He's like, this is a good image. I like this. He saw the reflection, and he fell in love with what he saw. And he, and, he, and he could not turn away from the image of himself in the screen. He gazed into that stream day and night and became obsessed, became trapped right there. Where eventually, in Greek mythology, this young man, narcissist, turned into the narcissist flower, which happens to be the daffodil. Did you know that? the daffodil, and he was left to bloom on the water's edge. You know what's, I mean, that's kind of a funny story, but you know what's amazing? Is that Greek mythology? Man, they had an incredible ability to diagnose human nature. Because aren't we all a little bit narcissist? If we're gonna be honest, we're all a little bit narcissist, right? We, we, we want to look out for ourselves. We're all, we're all self occupied to prioritize us above everyone else. It's part of our sin nature. Our sin nature causes us to pursue ourselves instead of others. How many of you have ever kind of felt that tension? You know, where you know, like, I know I'm supposed to be loving. I know I'm supposed to be giving. I know I'm supposed to be other-centered. But man, it's so hard because I find myself always coming back to look out for number one, to look out for myself. That's our natural instinct that we are selfish. And you know what happens? You know what happens when you bring selfish people together? You know what happens? Conflict. Arguing. Like, you ever been married? 
Like that's what happens. You bring two married people together and guess what happens? You have two selfish people that get married and that's what brings that conflict. So for example, this past week, my wife and I, Samantha, we had a little tiff. We had a little tiff. And I'll just full confession. You know why? Because I was selfish and I didn't want to admit that I was wrong. How many of us been in those shoes? We know that situation. And it's no different in church. In church, we come together and we love Jesus and we're living for Jesus. But how many times does our selfish nature then creep into the church? We find ourselves in conflict with other people because we're selfish. We like what I think, what I believe. In fact, there was a church in Dallas, a large church a number of years ago. And uh, they ended up having this huge feud in this church. It was, it was a big feud. And the church kind of split themselves into different sides, where you've got one side that said, well, I, I believe this. I, I believe the Rams are going to win. You've got the other side, like, well, we're, we believe the Bengals are going to win. And this church had this huge conflict, and neither side could come to a resolution. And they're arguing over leadership, arguing over all these things. And because they couldn't find a resolution, somebody said, well, we're going to take this to court. And so the church takes the Rams and the Bengals, and they go to court and say, court, help us figure out who's right. And the court is like, you guys are idiots. This doesn't belong in the court. They send it back down to the denomination. And the denomination looks at the two different sides. Say, well, I've got half the church that seems this way, half the church this way. The church, I don't know what, they decided on one of the sides. I don't know which side they decided on. And guess what happened? Again, this is a large church all about Jesus, the side that didn't get their way. They left and started a new church. That's called church growth. That's how the Christians do it. They started a new church, and they split the church. And what's so interesting is, while this was happening, while this church was arguing with each other and going into the court system and all these different things, a reporter from the newspaper heard what was happening in the church, and the reporter was like, man, I want to figure out what's going on here. And so this reporter did some investigation to try and get to the, to the bottom. What caused this huge split? What caused this church to, to split like this? And you'd be surprised. The source of the trouble came, there was a church dinner, you know, like a potluck. And there was a church elder who got a smaller plate than the child sitting next to him. And that's what caused the entire split of the church. All because even as Christians, we have this selfish nature within us. See, we could probably spend all day talking about stories like this, of how our selfish nature caused issues and conflict. And maybe it's easier for us to point it in other people. Well, I'll tell you about these people. I'll tell you about that story. But I just, like, I got to think. I got to think that God has something more for us than just that. I mean, I got to believe that God has something greater in store for us as his people, as the church, than us having all these conflicts over our selfish nature. See, this morning, uh, we're continuing to celebrate this new building that God has provided us in, and we're so thankful for it. And I figured since we're in this new building, it's fitting for us to have a conversation about us as a church. And so we're in a series that we're calling Family Values, where we can talk about the values and the attitudes that should direct how we live and act as a church. This determines how we, how we behave with one another, how we behave in our community. These are the things that we want to be known for. As we talk about these family values, this is, we want to be clear about who we are as a church. 
This is who we are. And I tell you, these values are incredibly important. Because I'll tell you what happens, church. Here's what happens. People walk in the doors, and we want them to be, to, to notice something's different in here. And I'm not talking about something different about the size of our church. I'm not talking about all the great music we sing. I'm not talking about how, 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 how great programs we offer or the great kids ministry. I'm not talking about the mediocre preaching. Like, we want people to walk into this church and say something is different. What is it? It is how we live and interact with one another. It is these values that make the difference. So today, we're going to talk about something that is foundational for us as Christians. In fact, in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus said something. John, John 13, Jesus said, they will know you are Christians by your morality. Right? Is that what he said? No, 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 Jesus, no, no, that's not what it says. It says, they will know you are Christians by who you voted for. Nope, that's not what the verse says. It says, you'll know there are Christians by how you judge other people. No, that's not what it says either. They'll know you're Christians by your bumper sticker on the back of your car. No, that's not what scripture says. It says they will know we are Christians by our, what's the word? Love. They'll know we are Christians by our love. Now, I know we hear that and we're like, well, what's the big deal? I mean, non-Christians love. They, they love people. So, so what's the big deal for Christians to be known for love? And I got the answer to that. See, there was a time in, in Matthew chapter 22 where some religious leaders come up to Jesus. They're like, hey, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Remember what Jesus said? The greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the greatest commandment. And the second is like the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. See, for Christians, what makes our love different is our love is not about us. It's not about what we get, what we want, how it benefits us. Our love is all about God and other people. It's about God and others. That is the, the core of Christian love. And so as we're talking about values of Restoration Church, our value today is, is, determines how we interact with one another and how we interact with our community. And so our first value that we're talking about as a church is that we are going to love outrageously. We're going to love outrageously. And I know you're saying, well, what does that mean, to love outrageously? See, I say Christian love is outrageous because it's not common. It's not how the world operates. It's not, it's not how the world loves. It's uncommon. That's what makes our love so outrageous. A love that puts other people's needs and concerns and interests above our own. And I tell you what, as we learn to live like this, as we learn to love outrageously, man, this is where unity comes from. And this is where we end up having a tremendous impact on the world because the world's looking and saying, man, what's so different about that church? Man, it's the fact that they love others more than themselves. So this morning, our text uh, that Gary read for us is Philippians chapter 2, and this is probably my favorite passage in the entire Bible. We talked last week that Philippians, the theme for this book is about joy, how you can have joy in whatever circumstance you're in. And another theme of this book is unity. You see, there was, in that church, there was two ladies in the church, and they had a bit of a, you know, they're both Christians, they're both serving in the church, but these ladies had a disagreement. They had an argument. They had some conflict. And what happened is the church began to take sides. 
Some of the church said, well, I'm with this lady. The other said, I'm with this lady. And so there's this division and this disunity in the church. And so Philippians chapter 2, the apostle Paul begins to lay some groundwork on, listen, here's how you work through disagreement. Here's how you find unity in the church. So here's what Paul starts in verse 1. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, if there's any affection and sympathy, I want to be clear here. What Paul is saying is he's writing and saying, hey, you Christians. He's not saying if like, well, if there is. He's saying, no, there is. You're Christians. He's saying, since you have encouragement in your relationship with God, since you have the comfort from the love of God, since you have a Holy Spirit inside of you, since you have received mercy and affection from God, he's writing to us as Christians saying, this goes to you. Since you as Christians, you've received these things from God. Here's what you're to do. Verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition, what does that mean? Simply that is where we focus on ourselves. We focus on trying to further our own agenda, further our own needs, trying to fulfill our own desires, trying to gain our recognition. You ever seen anybody compete in the church? I'm better than you. I want to be seen. I want everyone to see me and hear me. We're talking about selfish ambition. The word conceit actually comes from a Greek word that means empty glory or useless glory. And that's where us as Christians, we start thinking, well, we get a little bit conceited. Look, I'm so worthy. I, I, I deserve better. I deserve more because I'm such a good person. That's called conceit. And see, what Paul is doing is he's addressing our narcissistic tendencies. He's addressing our human nature that is selfish and conceited about our life and our relationships and our desires and our wants and our everything else where we make life about me. And what Paul is saying, listen, church, church, if we're going to have unity, if we're going to be something that God could do something beautiful in, if we're going to be the church that God uses to change our community, we can't allow our natural instinct to determine how we interact with one another. So he says, do nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But it continues in verse 3 and says, in humility... Count others more significant than yourself. Let each look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, there's a, there's a change that has to take place in us. If we're going to move from, from this selfish ambition and, and conceit, if we're going to move from this love of ourselves above everything else to this ability to count others more significant than ourselves, to actually love other people and to look to other people's own interests, there has to be a change that happens within us. And what is that change? It's in the text. Paul said this, in humility. The change that has to take place in us is humility. In fact, I would say this, that humility might be the source of happiness and joy that we long for in this world. If we could learn humility. See, the world and our human nature is all about us building a resume. We want to say, look at all the good things I've done. Look how righteous I am. Look how good I am. Look at all the good things. Look how great I am. And that's rooted in selfish ambition and conceit. 
to show how great we are. But humility, here's what humility is. Humility is not necessarily thinking less of yourself. Humility is not having poor self-esteem. In fact, I would say humility is a, sore, is a mark of moral strength and integrity. Humility acknowledges our human sinful nature. Humility acknowledges our inadequacies and recognizes that God is the source of anything good in our life apart from our own abilities and resources. Humility recognizes that it is God's grace that is the source of all of our accomplishments in this life. In fact, I'd say that humility, humility acknowledges what Scripture teaches. You know what Scripture says? Every one of us, what do we deserve? We deserve hell. Even the best of us in here, even the most righteous of us and in here, because of our selfish nature, Scripture says we deserve hell. Oftentimes, we're even blind to recognize how selfish we really are. It's like our eyes don't want to see truth and reality. Scripture says all of us are sinners and we deserve hell. But in humility, humility recognizes that it is the grace of God despite our failures, rather not because of our successes, but despite our failures that God loves us and blesses us and comforts us and meets us in our trouble and gives us what we need when we need him. See, it's in humility. It's humility that causes us to move from being self-focused to being able to focus on others. And this is where it becomes hard because it's not our natural way. And Paul recognizes that. Paul knows that just because he says, hey, Christians, here's the way you're supposed to live, he knows it's hard. And so Paul gives us an example. He says, let me give you an example of Jesus. In fact, these next couple of verses are some of the most profound in Scripture that tell us who Jesus is and what he did for us. This is what he says in verse 6. He says, though Jesus was in the form of God, which means that Jesus, what, Jesus was in his very nature, he was God. Okay, this is, this is not like Jesus is, is just, no, this is Jesus is God. Okay, he says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Here's what he said. Like, here's, here's Jesus. This is God in the flesh. This is Jesus who deserves the highest place that heaven could provide. He deserves to stand on the right, feet, right hand of God, judging the world. But what Paul just said is he had a greater priority than just himself. He had something greater than his own glory, greater than what he deserved, and he set aside. He set aside all that he deserved, all that was owed to him, and he became a servant. He became a servant. A servant? This is the lowest of the low. This is the lowest of the low. He set aside all that was due to him and became a servant. And as a servant, he counted us more significant than himself. You recognize, how, like, like, this is God. God set aside everything that was owed to him to be a servant to us. And why would he do that? Why, why would God do this through Jesus? Because of love. Because he loved us. 
And here's Jesus, he's thinking about you, and he's thinking about me, and he's thinking about how sin separates us from God. And he thought of us before he thought of himself. Do you understand how significant that is? How beautiful that is? When he continues and says, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Again, I just, like, like, I want us to picture how big this is. here's, Here's Jesus, who is infinitely more significant than any of us in this room. Here's Jesus, who's infinitely greater than you or me or anyone listening to this. He is infinitely more important than any of us. This is God in the flesh. Yet he doesn't cling to his rights. He doesn't cling to what he's deserved. He doesn't expect us to serve him. But rather, he set aside that, and he counted us as more significant than himself, and he served us. You know what that is? That is outrageous love. That is what it looks like to count others more significant than yourself. That is what it looks like to say, I'm not going to be this narcissist where I'm focused about me and what I want and what I feel and what I deserve and what's owed to me. Instead of saying, I'm going to prioritize others first. In fact, when you think about how much Jesus gave up for you, isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible to think that here's Jesus, here's God in the flesh. He set aside everything that was owed to him as being the creator of the universe and chose to give his life for you. Like, how incredible is that? That's life-changing to know that the God of the universe loves you that much. And here's Paul. He's writing to a group of Christians just like us. He's writing to a church in Philippi that is struggling with some division and factions and arguments and selfishness. And he's writing to them to say, hey, you need to get rid of this selfishness. You need to consider others more significant than yourself. And here's a picture of Jesus who set aside his rights in order to love you and to serve you to the point that it cost him his life. In fact, verse 2 is kind of the the bow of this whole text. Verse 2, Paul says, I want you to complete my joy. You Christians, I want you to be of the same mind, of the same love, being in full accord and having one mind. He says, hey, you Christians. Now he's speaking to us. We're Christians in this. We're Christians. Hey, you Christians. You need to have the same mind. You need to be in one accord, not a Honda Accord. You need to be in agreement with one another. You need to have unity on this, that we would love one another just as God has loved us. And this is where our unity comes from. This is where the power of the church comes from. Not because we're good at building a resume, not because we can build great programs, not because our worship is so good, not because the preacher tells funny jokes. No, the power of the church comes as we are of one accord, as we have this same love. The love that we receive from Jesus, that we didn't deserve, that Jesus said, I have all these things that owe to me, but I'm setting that aside because I love you and I'm going to give it up and I'll count you more significant than myself. 
our power as a church comes as we do the same thing. To say, I'm going to set aside what's owed to me, what I deserve, what I feel is mine, and instead I'm going to love other people in that same way. And that is where the power of the church comes from. That is where the picture of what God does, he redeems a broken people and makes us something beautiful. I mean, again, here's what the story is teaching us. Here's what this text is saying. Paul is writing to these Christians that are struggling with their natural tendency to be self-focused, to love ourselves, to seek our own interests above others. And Paul is saying, listen, you need to have this outrageous love. And outrageous love is evidence when we consider others before and above ourselves. That is what outrageous love is. When you put other people's interests and concerns above our own. I mean, just think about this for a second. Think about if you were to actually love outrageously, what kind of impact would that make on your life and your circle of influence? How would that transform your life and everything around you? Think about, think about your marriage. How would your marriage be different if you said, hey, you know what? Maybe my spouse wasn't created to meet all of my needs. What if you viewed marriage as being not about me and my needs and my wants, and you actually said, you know, maybe, maybe God put me in this marriage to sacrificially love and serve my spouse. How many conflicts have you had this past week, this past month? Think about this. How many conflicts have you had with your spouse this past month that have been rooted in selfishness? How would that transform if you loved outrageously where you considered your spouse's needs above your own? What about in your workplace, in your school? See, not only if we loved outrageously, not only would we have less conflict and frustration, how much influence would you gain over other people by loving them sacrificially where you weren't concerned about what you wanted and only you, but you actually became concerned about other people? Man, what could God do through you? And what about... What about our church? I'm going to tell you a little bit of a secret here. I don't mean to offend you. You realize church? Church is not about you. Church is not about your needs and your wants. And I'll tell you a secret. Church is not about me. It's not about my needs and my wants. You know who church is about? Look to your left and to your right. Look in front of you. Look behind you. You know what church is about? It's about the people in this room, the people around you. That's who it's about. It's about you and me serving one another, meeting the needs of those around us, sacrificing in order to show our love to the people right here in this place. That is what church is about. And how confusing that we make it about ourselves. Oh, I need a church that meets all my needs, that fulfills all my desires. Listen, man, you are... You have this tremendous amount of freedom when you realize church is not about you. That you actually have something to bring and to give. And that is where fulfillment is found. That is where church becomes beautiful to you. 
When you realize I'm not here to get, I'm here to give. But as we think about this idea of outrageous love, I want to tweak it just a little bit and challenge us in a little different way. Because let's be honest, when I'm told to love outrageously, there are some people that are a little bit easier for me to love. Anybody else say amen to that? Like, like, man, I, I, I love, I love loving on Seahawk play, Seahawk people. You know those Raiders people? It takes a little bit more work for me to like show love to them. Right? What about those people that are a little bit hard to love? What about those people who are obnoxious? What about those people who have a really rough background? What about those people who are not deserving of our love? What about that person who is rude and arrogant and mean? See, there's a phrase in our text that I want to come back to in verse 3, and I found it very challenging this week. Paul says, in humility, that you count others more significant. You count them, which means I regard them more significant even if they're not. You, you give it to them. In fact, this is the same idea of how God views us, that we are not worthy. In Romans 5.8, Romans 5.8, the apostle Paul says, this is, uh, uh, this is how God has loved us, that while we were sinners... Christ died for us. While we were rebelling against him, he still chose to die for us. We were not worthy. We were rebelling against him. We were saying, okay, God, I don't care. You've got a plan, but I'm going to do my own thing. Yet he still counted us more significant than himself and gave his life for us. He chose to view us as more significant. So let me ask you this question. How do you respond to those EGRs? How do you respond to the person? You know who those people are, right? You can picture that person in your mind. It's a person who has no filter, who says the wrong thing at the wrong time. That's the person with the annoying habits that drive you crazy. It's the person who drives and cuts you off every time you see him and takes your parking spot. EGRs. You know what we call those? People that require extra grace required. EGR, you get it? Do you show that person love? Do you actually pray for that person? Or do you actively try to avoid that person and then complain about them all the time at home. Man, this person drives me crazy. Do you actually love that person as Christ has called us to? Do you have an outrageous love to those who have, view things different, different politically than you do? I'll tell you what. Man, I think Satan has done a work on the church in the last couple of years over our political divide where we might view things one way and somebody else might view things another. And I don't know if because it's the media, because of our politicians, where it's either, hey, you're either with me or against me. Where here you've got the church, you've got these two different sides. And I'll be honest, I've seen it. There are people in our church that have not talked to somebody different than them because they view things different than them. 
because of how they viewed masks, because of how they voted. Listen, I think God is speaking something powerful here. And are you going to show an outrageous love to those who view things differently than you? Because I don't think, I don't think this text has any pass over those that are a little bit more difficult for us to love. Those of you things differently than us, we are still called to love them outrageously. We are called to, to live differently and to love people who might be on the other side of the aisle and sacrifice for them and serve them. And I'll tell you what, maybe that means for you this week, maybe that means you need to pull out the cell phone and start calling some people that you haven't seen in a while. Say, you know what? I haven't seen you. I want you to know I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. How can I, how can I pray specifically for you? Here at Restoration Church, we're always talking about diversity. That's one of the things that we want to be known for is, is, is a church that doesn't matter your background. doesn't matter the color of your skin. doesn't matter your economic background. doesn't matter your educational background. We want to be a place that all people are welcome. Do you know how we do that? Do you know how we come together to be the body of Christ, to be the picture of Revelation chapter 7, when every nation, every tongue will come and worship Christ together? You know how we do that? The same way with outrageous love. When we practice this outrageous love, where we put other people's interests above our own, so we come in and we say, hey, this is how I like to worship. These are, this is how I like the, the service to be. This is how I like the environment to be. This is how I like the pastor to preach. But when we are loving other people in that way, it's not about my preferences. Because guess what? That song, I may hate that song. I may not like that style. But guess what? Someone else in the room, God might use that to speak to them. So I'm not going to complain that this wasn't my favorite song, but I'm going to pray that the God would use that to draw someone else. This is where we put other people's interests above our own. We set aside our preferences so we can love other people. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what, church. There's a tremendous power. There's a tremendous power when we as Christians, as a church, when we live this out, when we are a people who love one another outrageously and we set aside our wants and our desires and our preferences for the sake of someone else. I want to close with a story by a guy by the name of Wynton Marcellus. This guy, you may not have heard his name before. He's a recognized jazz and classical musician in New York. Done some huge things through jazz and classical music. And part of his career was to go around and teaching these master classes about jazz all across the country. So he goes and teaches these classes to, you know, high school bands, all the way to the most prestigious music conservatories. He's just a great teacher. And what, and what Winton does is every time he comes to one of these meetings, he, he has a band come in. He says, band, I want you to play me a song. And so you've got all the, all the pieces of the band. You've got the clarinets and the trumpets and the violin. I don't know whatever else is in those bands. All those instruments. And so I want you to play me a song. And they start playing him a song. And normally, a song lasts like four or five minutes. But again, the musicians are like, man, we've got this 
we've got this famous guy, this really good musician. Here's our opportunity to show off. And so all the soloists, they play longer than they should. They want to show how great they are. And so what should be a four or five minute song turns into eight minutes, 10 minutes, 12 minutes, and it just keeps going. And when the song finishes, Winton asks the entire band, he says, can anybody tell me what the first or second soloist played? And what's amazing, Winton has been doing this for 40 years. 40 years. In 40 years, not a single person, not a single person has ever been able to tell him what the first or second soloist played when they started that song. Why? What were they doing? Those musicians were not concerned with what the others were playing. They were concerned with themselves, about what they wanted to play, about how they could impress this great musician. And Winton made this point. He said, whether we're talking about a band or in life, it doesn't matter how great you are. You might be the greatest soloist in the world. If you have no one to play with, you're not going to sound good. You're not going to be all that you could be. The restoration. I believe that God has the ability to do something beautiful right here. I believe that. When I say that God has the ability to do something beautiful, I'm not talking about getting a bunch of people to show up on a Sunday morning. I'm talking about I believe that God can do something beautiful and make a difference in our city. I believe that God could transform our city where we see sinners that are redeemed. We see broken people find healing. We see addictions set free. We see people that are depressed find purpose. This is a beauty, I think, that we can see God do right here. This is God brings us together as we love outrageously as we begin to serve one another and consider others before ourselves, that's when we no longer become a bunch of lone rangers trying to accomplish something on our own. That is, as Winton would say, that is when we become a beautiful symphony. When we love outrageously, then when people walk through our doors, they say there's something different about this place. What is it? It's a bunch of people that have been transformed by the love of Jesus to have chosen to love one another in that way. Let's pray.